So today we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to read the whole chapter again like we did in in, uh, chapter 15, because as great as chapter 15 is, uh, chapter 16 is probably equally as disappointing as as Genesis 15 is assuring. Uh, And so we've been, since chapter 12, we've been looking at the story of the man of faith or the father of faith, uh, the, the patriarch Abraham. And all of us have grown up hearing the stories of Abraham and, and wondering at the faith of Abraham. And, and Abraham throughout Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3 through 5, is exhibited as this man of faith. And how great a man he was for trusting God, for believing God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And we saw back in Genesis 15 verse 6 that it says that very thing, that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And so as we go through the story of Genesis and as we get to particularly the story of Abraham, his story can be a refreshing story because up until Genesis chapter 12, all we've seen with little spots of respite have been the faithlessness of humanity, whether it was Cain or Lamech or the people of Noah's day, or even Noah himself after the flood, and Ham, his son, and the people of Babel, all the way up through chapter 12, we've seen this faithless humanity. And it has been hard for us to take it over and over again and to realize that humanity is fully uh, depraved and brought into sin by the fall of Adam. And then you find this this beautiful statement in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that God is going to bless Abram, he's going to make his name great, that he's going to make him a blessing, and that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so you look at this and you say, ah, finally the story is changing, and the story is changing uh, in a very large way. But yet... For every good thing that happens in Abram's life, for every act of faith where Abram, like in chapter 12, gets up and he leaves and he goes to the land that God has promised him. For every act of faith, there is an equal and opposite reaction of faithlessness that we find in Abram's life. One of the stories that we didn't cover in chapter 12, but is going to become a very important part of chapter 16, is that right after Abram has received the initial blessing of God in chapter 12, we find out at the end of chapter 12 that there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And in a lack of faith, Abram goes into Egypt. And when he goes into Egypt, he has another lapse of faith in which he He is afraid for his life because Pharaoh becomes attracted to his wife, Sarah. And so he lies about who Sarah is. And as a result, he brings a curse on all of Egypt. And the Pharaoh finds out about it and ends up giving Abram this huge 
dowry effectively to get him to leave so that he will be able to uh, escape the curse that God has brought on his land. And so we find ebbs and flows in this faithfulness of Abram. And in the last chapter, we saw this great statement of faith where it says that Abram believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. But then immediately following that story is the story that we find in Genesis chapter 16. And if Abram is known for his faithfulness in particularly the story of him being willing to sacrifice Isaac, he is probably equally known for this story right here. His faithful, faithlessness in his willingness to take his wife's handmaiden and sleep with her so that he might have a child outside of the promise of God. And so this colossal failure that we see is going to be the focus of our subject of our text today. And there are two parts to this passage that I want you to see today. The first part that we'll look at in verses one through six is the blindness of Abram and Sarah. And then the second part is the God who sees. So let's read uh, Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll pray and we'll get into these two parts of the sermon today. God's word says, and starting in chapter 16, verse 1, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And she said, and he said to Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his, all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, 
You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lehe Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The first thing that I want you to see from the text is the blindness of Abram and Sarai. If you look again at verses 1 through 6, what you find is that there are two types of blindness in this story. And they are both related. Remember that God made a promise to Abram that he would give him innumerable descendants. And Abram initially believed God and trusted the promise. But there have been significant signs of Abram's doubt so far. For one, like I said earlier, he went down to Egypt. He didn't trust in God's provision to take care of him in the famine. And not just that, but when he got to Egypt, he almost gave his wife away to the Pharaoh out of fear. Now this doubt uh, really came to a head in the last chapter, in chapter 15, when God reassured Abram through a covenant that he would bless him and that he would make his name great and that he would give him innumerable descendants. So apparently Abram and Sarah both, they still doubt God's provision and it's going to take a terrible turn for the worse here in chapter 16. So the first blindness that I want you to see in this passage is the blindness of worldly pressure. Sarah is about 85 years old at this point, and she is well past childbearing age. But we already know from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 11 that she has never been able to conceive a child. So now, all of a sudden, her husband receives this promise that he is going to have descendants as innumerable as the stars in the heavens, and he's going to be the father of a great nation, and she's initially hopeful. But as the years progress, and as we know from this passage at the very end, that it's been 10 years after this initial promise of God, as the years progress, Sarah has begun wondering when God is going to deliver on his promise. She wants a baby for all sorts of reasons. For one, women of her day were, excuse me ladies, but they were valued as little more than property. And as, uh, this might be a crude analogy, but as a heifer that couldn't bear calves is useless or worthless to its owner, so too women of that day were viewed as worthless if they couldn't bear children. In fact, it was considered proper and completely shameless if a man decided to divorce his wife as a result of her inability to produce offspring for him. You know, even today, we, uh, or ladies particularly, find your identity in children. I mean, it's something that you feel like you are, are, are whole if you're able to produce uh, children. 
And it, after all, for one, is the most precious gift that God gives us. And particularly to women, it's a precious gift. But even today, couples who struggle to have children or who are unable to have children at all have more problems and more difficulties in their marriage than couples who can produce children. These are some of the pressures that you can imagine Sarah, Sarah is facing at this very moment. So she is blinded by these pressures. And she's also blinded to the fact that God has rescued her from Egypt when, she, when even her husband was unwilling to do so. She is blinded to the fact that God gave her husband a great victory over the most powerful king in the land. She is blinded to the fact that God has taken care of them this whole time in the land of Canaan. All she can focus on is the pressures of the world. And because of those pressures, she comes up with what has to be the craziest idea in all of Scripture. She decides that she's going to take her handmaid that she picked up while she was in Egypt... And she is going to give that handmaid, this good-looking 20-something-year-old woman, to her husband. And she is going to conceive a child by this handmaid and, and adopt the child as her own. And by that, she is going to fulfill the promise of God, even though she doesn't believe God is going to be faithful to fulfill her promise, His promises to her. So the second case of blindness that I want you to see is the blindness of ungodly counsel. Abraham is also feeling the pressures of the world. After all, he's not getting any younger either. And we've already seen that he has begun to doubt the promises of God. And so God has come to him in chapter 15 and reassured him of the promise that he is going to fulfill in his life. But then Abram's wife comes to him with this fantastic proposal. Now, all of us men in here have been married for a long time. Uh, some of y'all have been married much longer than I have, but I, I, I've got 18 years on me so far. And, and I, I'm, I want you to just imagine for a moment, after being married, being married as long as you have, your wife coming to you and saying, you know, honey, we're not getting any younger and we're not able to have kids anymore. And I've got this girl that works for me that I want you to, to go in and sleep with. And you can take her as your wife. And, and uh, you, I want you to have children by her. Now, I don't care how good of a man you are. That, in some way, has to be a temptation for every man. And I want you to notice that there are a lot of parallels to the temptation that Adam faced in the Garden of Eden. And I believe that those parallels are intentional. If you remember back in, the, in Genesis chapter 3, Eve is tempted by Satan to take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and to eat it and to give it to her husband who was with her. Eve took the fruit that she had eaten and she gives it to her husband. Now, Adam should have rebuked 
the serpent in the venom that he was spewing at her husband. I mean, at her at his wife, but he didn't. He should have spoken up as his wife was reaching for the fruit, but he didn't. Instead, he sat by idly and watched while his wife sinned against God. And not just that, but he participated in that sin with her. And so, to this day, the, the writers of the rest of Scripture and every theologian since then has called the sin of Genesis chapter 3 not the sin of Eve, but the sin of Adam. Because Adam was given charge to have dominion and to rule. He should have rebuked the serpent and he should have rebuked his wife. He should have defended his wife, but he didn't. And in much the same way, Abram goes down to Egypt. And while he's there, instead of defending his wife, he allows his wife to be taken into the harem of Pharaoh. And instead of rejecting the, um, the gifts that the Pharaoh would give to him, like he did in Genesis chapter 14 when he rejected the, the gifts that the king of Sodom gave to him, instead of rejecting those gifts of the king of Egypt, he accepted them. Well, guess what one of those gifts was, I think, from the gift uh, from the king of Pharaoh. A good-looking 20-something-year-old servant girl named Hagar. And so, Abram, like Adam, sits idly by while his wife is tempted. Not just that, but he sits idly by and listens while his wife also tempts him and takes the forbidden fruit that he had received in Egypt and gives it, she takes and gives it to her husband who is with her. And instead of saying, no, we need to remain faithful to God. No, we need to resist the temptations of Satan. No, we need to trust in God's provision. He takes what his wife offers him and he, as the writer says, listened to his wife. So Adam, I mean, so Abram is unfaithful. He doubts the very promises of God. He listens to this crazy proposal of his wife. And instead of seeing his wife as his standard of beauty and trusting in God to deliver his promise, Abram gave in to ungodly counsel and his own lustful desires. So let's look at what happens next, starting in verse 4. Now this is how you know that the Bible is true. Because it reveals human nature for what it really is. Even with, with the guy that you would think would be the hero of the story, the man of faith himself, yet it shows him to be flawed and sinful like the rest of us. After Hagar has her child, it says that she began to despise her mistress. In other words, she became insubordinate. She realized that she was young and fertile and and uh, 
capable and and she realized that her mistress was old and infertile and manipulative. And so Hagar began to disobey. Well, Sarah starts nagging Abram about this disobedient servant of hers. And so finally, Abram, in order to get away from the, the pestering and away from the difficulty of this strange arrangement that he has between these two women, he gives his wife permission to abuse Hagar. And she does. And as a result, Hagar flees. So this brings me to the last section of this chapter in verses 7 through 16. Hagar flees and she's headed back to Egypt. And I want you to feel the weight of the situation that Hagar is in. She is a slave who has been sold out of her own country. And she's pregnant with a biracial child and of, the, of an old nomad father. She is stuck out in the desert without, without any food, without any water, and without any protection. And Hagar is about as far away from any help as she can be, and she's in as about as bad a place as she can be. If she returns to Egypt, she will be a runaway slave and the mother of a bastard. If she goes back to Abram, she might sell, he might sell her as soon as he gets her back, uh, or as soon as the child is born, he might sell her off so that she might, he might resolve this situation with his two wives and be rid of this problem maker that she's become. She is at the end of her wits, and she comes to a well in the middle of a desert. While she's there, an angel appears to her and asks her why she's running away. Now notice the promise that the angel gives to Hagar in verse 10. He gives her the same promise that God gave to Abram. Her son will be the father of many great nations. Hagar worships God here, and she gives to God a name that is found nowhere else in the Bible. She calls him the God who sees. Hagar thought that she was forgotten by the world, a runaway slave doomed to die either in the desert or in jail. She was as far away from anyone or anything as she could be. And in the middle of her despair, God saw her. Now there's another case of a woman at a well in the New Testament. It involves another woman and another well, but the, different, but the comparisons are striking. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he comes to a well in the town of Shechem. And Samaria, remember, is a place that is despised by the Jews, much like Egypt would have been. He comes to a well in the middle of the day, and there's a woman there who's drawing water. And you know that women didn't draw water in the middle of the day because it's a desert society, and you wouldn't have drawn it during the heat of the day. You would have come early in the morning or late in the afternoon. And so it's obvious from this woman being here at this time that something is wrong with her. 
It's obvious that this woman doesn't want to be seen. But Jesus sees her. He asked her for a drink. And she's shocked because Jews don't speak to Samaritans. But Jesus tells her that if she knew who he was, then she would ask him for living water. She gets all excited because she thinks that he knows where a spring is. And yet Jesus says, no, I will show you where this living water is. But first, you must go get your husband. She lies to him a little bit and says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've been married five times, and the man that you're now with is not your husband. And Jesus reveals that she know, he knows everything about this woman. He sees her, not just as a woman at a well, but he sees everything about her. And yet, Jesus doesn't judge her. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He saves her. He tells her that he is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. And he opens up the kingdom of heaven to her by telling her that God is now looking for men and women who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman goes into the village and says, I met this man who told me my whole life story and you have to come meet him because he saw me. He knew who I was and he saw me. You see, brothers and sisters, recognize that God is the God who sees. For some of you, this may at, at first glance be a terrible thought because God does indeed see your sin. You might think like Sarah and Abram did that you can hide your sins or you can do things your own way and God will be okay with it. But know that the Lord is the God that sees. He sees the fact that you give into the pressure of this world and that you try to fit in by throwing your life away. He sees that you have given in to ungodly counsel or to the lust of your flesh and do things that other people might not know about. He sees when no one else is looking. But the fact that God sees is not meant to be a terrifying thing. It's meant to be a gracious truth. God sees you. And he knows exactly who you are. Just like Jesus knew exactly who this woman at the well was. He knows what you've done and he knows where you've been. He knows the shame that you walk with. He knows the sins that you can't seem to suppress or get away from. He knows exactly who you are. And yet he is still gracious to you. Yet he still comes at the time of your greatest need to bring you living water, to bring you forgiveness and righteousness that is not your own. You might think that the world is against you. You might feel like Hagar, that you are despised and rejected. But God is the God who sees. The last thing I want you to notice is I want you to notice who the hero of this story is. If you had to guess, if you had to put a hero on the story, who would it be? It's not Abram, the man of faith. 
who listened to his wife and who brought about a dysfunctional family that to this day is still fighting over in the Middle East. It's not Sarah who tempted her husband to destroy their own marriage. It's not even Hagar who ran from everyone, including God. No, the hero of this story is the same hero of every story in the book of Genesis and throughout the rest of the Bible. The hero of this story is God himself, the God who sees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you see us. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in the mire of our sins, lost and wandering in the desert, unable to find even a drop of water, but yet you provide to us springs of living water through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us when we wander. Forgive us when we fail you. Give us a faithfulness that goes beyond our own abilities and rather is the result of your Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Bless us now as we continue to worship. May we leave this place faithfully walking after you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.